brand design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. The prison industrial complex costs American society $80 billion annually. Half of that goes to vendors that serve the criminal legal system. In talking about the scope of the imprisonment of people in the United States, it's helpful to compare us to the rest of the world. The United States imprisons more of its population than any other country on earth. And if you were to turn each individual of the 50 states into, for comparison purposes, a sovereign state like every other country, the first 35 at the top of the list are either an individual state or the United States itself. Number 36 is El Salvador, followed by Oregon, Turkmenistan, followed by California, Maryland, Rwanda, and Cuba. Clearly, something is badly, badly wrong here. In the U.S. at any given time, there are more than 2 million people incarcerated, and at the same time, racial and ethnic disparities exist throughout the criminal legal system. So we invest money and time and efforts and resources in holding prisoners and feeding them in their medical care. We spend money on the world's largest population of imprisoned citizens while they're in custody, but almost none of those dollars go to the part of life that happens after incarceration. The result is that citizens returning to society are often left with few prospects for employment. If they've been incarcerated in young adulthood, they may lack skills that would lead to employment. A returned citizen unable to work isn't a good prospect for integrating back into family, back into their community, and the result of that lack of the basic tools to resume life is recidivism and the $80 billion a year eventually becomes $90 billion a year and so on. It seems like the part of the imprisonment cycle is missing is the part about what's next after release. To help us make sense of all of this, we're joined by someone who has a unique 360-degree view of this issue. He is presently CEO of Second Chance Strategies and advocates for vocational training and support services to returning citizens. Before that, he was a resident of the United States Federal Correctional Institution at Morgantown, West Virginia, where he was released after three years of a five-year sentence. Before that, he was the chief law enforcement official for the city of Philadelphia, having been twice elected to the office of district attorney. Seth Williams, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much, Ted. I, I, I greatly appreciate your introduction, your layout of all those statistics and facts, and I, I'm glad to be here uh, with your audience to discuss and to you know talk about this topic. I do think I have a unique perspective. It has formerly been uh, the elected district attorney, um, a criminal defense attorney, a federal inmate, and a, a GED instructor while incarcerated. Um, and so I've seen, you know, every angle of this broken criminal justice system. And uh, I'm just glad to be here with you to have this conversation. Well, I'm glad you were able to join us. So let's, every, every superhero has, a, has an origin story. Let's get into okay. yours. So let's, let's start at the beginning. You, you were raised in West Philadelphia in Cobbs Creek. Sure. You, so my origin story, I was given up for adoption at birth. Um, I lived in an orphanage and I lived in uh, foster care. And then I was adopted by a wonderful family, Rufus and Imelda Williams, and they lived in Cobbs Creek. My father was a school teacher. 
Um, he came home every night and made sure I did my homework and we had dinner together and he took a nap. And then he went to his second job where he worked at a recreation center in our neighborhood at 63rd and Spruce. And he ran a day camp all summer, every summer for Fairmount Park. Um, and so his entire life was committed to improving the quality of life uh, for children and families in our neighborhood. Um, I later told people that despite me becoming the district attorney, I know my father did much more than I'll ever do to prevent crime with what he was doing. My mother was a, a secretary at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. She was actually the executive secretary to the commanding officer. Mm. And uh, she would like to say that there was a different captain every three years, but she was always the boss. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I, 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 my, my father was raised by an AME minister. Uh, he converted to Catholicism when he met my mother. My dad didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't curse, but he married a a young Creole woman who was 10 years younger than him that did all three of those things well and often. <laughs> right. So I was raised Catholic. I went to friend central, which was a private Quaker school on city line <laughs> Avenue where about 90% of my classmates were Jewish. Um, and so I grew up having a very, I think healthy respect and appreciation for people of different faiths and the, the manner in which they worship. Interesting. And, and, and so is it fair to say that this upbringing is, also helped you become a young activist, which you, you became? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my father went to Penn State, as I did 40 years later. My father went to Penn State, got there in 1940, and he was one of 12 black students at Penn State. All of them were African-American men. All of them were varsity athletes, right? So my father was on an NCAA cross-country championship team. Uh, but because of the color of his skin, couldn't live on campus. I can't imagine that, right? Going to a college, being on a varsity team, basically making money for the school, but you couldn't live on campus. Um, after serving in World War II, my father and his friends that survived, and my uncle went back to Penn State, founded the NAACP chapter, and founded the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity chapter, and had sit-ins and protests to demand civil rights and public accommodations. And there's a historical marker now where my father lived off campus that tells that story. And so I grew up with a father who um, every night, one way or the other, said, you know, unless you're willing to be a part of the solution, you forfeit your right to complain. Mm -hmm. And so I always found myself just, you know, fifth grade class president. I was, I was a head altar boy, right, in 1980. Um, you know, quarterback on the football team, um, president of the Black Caucus at Penn State. Um, I led a march. We walked 102 miles from State College to Harrisburg to get our school to divest from South Africa. Um, and later, uh, Governor Casey wrote a letter demanding the board of trustees to divest, and they did. I served as a president of the entire undergraduate student government, one thing after the next, right? And then I became the DA. So it wasn't out of some sort of Napoleonic desire to conquer. It was just a combination of my Catholic guilt, uh, Quaker philosophy, and what my father said every night at the dinner table. And I always found myself in, you know, trying to, as I saw it, um, fight for justice, um, fight for the, the underdog. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate 
all of those things, as you said, as being part of the, uh, the origin story. So somewhere along the way, uh, you, you managed to fit in getting a law degree at Georgetown, and you also ended up in the Army. Yes. So I was fortunate after I graduated from uh, Penn State, I was accepted to Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. as a public interest law scholar. Um, and just met some amazing people, was exposed to some wonderful things. Um, Peter Edelman, he, he served as Bobby Kennedy's chief of staff. He later married Marion Wright Edelman, who created the Children's Defense Fund. Um, she was the first African-American woman to become a member of the bar in Mississippi. They met in Mississippi on the Freedom Rides. Hmm. Um, he was my advisor in law school. So I had just a tremendous experience um, at Georgetown. All the things I was fighting against as a student at Penn State, fighting racism and sexism and homophobia, I found I didn't have to do any of those things when I got to law school. I just, it just, it just really enjoyed it. I had a different perspective, different educational experience. Um, I then joined the district attorney's office of Philadelphia in September of 1992 as an assistant DA. Um, I got married in 1996 and to supplement and you know, my income without leaving the DA's office, I was commissioned as an officer. And I was a judge advocate general in the United States Army Reserves and then later in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. I served almost 19 years in the Army. Mm. And, and so you're at the DA's office, and while an assistant DA, you created the Repeat Offenders Unit. That's correct. And and this this sort of harkens to what's going to come in in your activism now. But but the goal of the Repeat Offenders Unit was to reduce crime by reducing a criminal act more than once by the same individual. Correct. And Ted, as you were talking in the intro for our conversation, you were talking really about criminogenics and criminological studies and research. Um, I knew nothing about that. I was an assistant DA starting in 1992 and was really just uh, trying cases every day. I was a litigator, right, as an assistant district attorney, championing victims, and I thought also trying to ensure due process rights for those that were accused. Um, but to remain an assistant DA, in addition to joining the Army, I started teaching at Penn State Ogons. It's now Penn State Abington. And of course, they asked the assistant DA to teach criminology. And so while I was learning criminology to teach these students, a lot of it was I was just absorbing it. And they asked me to create a unit in 2000 called the Repeat Offenders Unit to deal with the phenomena that you know, we have a very small percentage of Americans that one, commit crime, and a supermajority of those that do commit the supermajority of crimes. Um, and so I learned through that experience that we really have to address the root causes of criminal behavior. Um, economic inequality, um, the lack of uh, mental health care treatment that's community-based, um, you know, educational disparity, all of these things dramatically affect who commits crime, but the geography of crime. There's an entire pattern of crime based on time, temperature, season. These are things I didn't know, but I learned teaching criminology, and I applied that um, 
when they asked me to create the repeat offenders unit to deal with those that had the highest rate of recidivism. Uh, and I use a geographical approach called community-based prosecution, which fast forward, I ran against my predecessor, Lynn Abraham for district attorney under the theory of us being smart on crime, not just tough, um, and using uh, community-based prosecution. When I later became the district attorney, we instituted community-based prosecution, meaning the DAs are assigned geographically, um, mirroring the police department and how they're assigned geographically. I had a tremendous partner in police commissioner Ramsey, and we used community-based prosecution. We then used gun stat. I read what was working in other places around the country to combat gun violence and to reduce it, to make our city safer. And we used gun stat and an idea created by a professor at the John Jay School of Criminology in New York. His name is um, David Kennedy, called Focus Deterrence. And we implemented that in Philadelphia. With a combination of those things and um, diversionary programs for people who just needed a second chance and didn't need to be thrown into the prisons that you were talking about originally, we were able to reduce gun violence and homicides in Philadelphia to almost 50% of what they had been uh, in the 60s. Um, and you know, we'll get to, uh, I was later incarcerated um, and successor uh, administrations eliminated gun stack, community-based prosecution, focused deterrence. Um, and now we have homicide rates and gun violence that are uh, unfortunately and staggering just through the roof, um, almost twice what they were in 2013, 2014. Well, you, you mentioned that, and I was going to delicately get there, and I'm not going to get there yet, but I, I, will, I want to talk about one thing. After sure. you were elected district attorney in 2009, um, you created something that got a lot of attention in the early days of the current administration uh, running the district attorney's office, which is the, for lack of a better term, bad cops list. But, you know, perhaps more appropriately would be the cops you never want to put on the witness stand list for any number of reasons. And, and that, that got a lot of attention, particularly thanks to a documentary that was done and, and released at Sundance this past year um, that that focused on the first several years of District Attorney Krasner's administration. Uh, it got a lot of attention because it looked like the district attorney's office was, you know, focusing on systemic problems within law enforcement. But in reality, that was a carryover from your time there, That 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 you had turned the lens on on systemic weaknesses in the prosecution process? Well, part of my concept when I ran for DA the first time in 2005, right, no matter where I've worked, I've always thought I could do a better job than the boss. If it was working at Sears and Roebuck at 63rd Market when I was a kid or delivering pizzas for Domino's or when I was in college, I drove cab. Just there's got to be a better way. All employees sit around the lunch table thinking about like if I was boss for the day, what will we do? Um, and so I knew that I wanted to improve the criminal justice system in Philadelphia. Uh, but to me, that means addressing both the systemic uh, racism and classism, right, that is, you know, endemic with our system. It's almost part of the foundation of the criminal justice system. But we also have to eliminate 
process problems that make the system inefficient, just as a good business. I know that your shows here are primarily about business. I wanted to do things that would eliminate the inefficiencies to make it better. Um, uh, and to also focus on improving public safety by actually using empirical data, evidence-based practices. It's one thing to talk tough, but it's another thing we'll see what is causing the crime, what can we do to prevent that? Um, and so we try to use all those things, um, you know, to make the city safer. And I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish. Um, but I think today people are being sold a false narrative of, of what it means. And they're being told we either have to be all about addressing systemic racism or public safety. No, we have to do both. Right, we have to do both simultaneously. Right. We're talking about second chances with Seth Williams. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. So 2017, things start to get complicated in your day-to-day -day life. The United States attorney announced what would ultimately become a 29-count indictment for activities broadly described as bribery. You ended up pleading guilty to one count of violating the Travel Act, and you were sentenced to five years in federal prison, which you referred to as, uh, jokingly earlier, as, as your sabbatical. Um, where, where, where do we even begin to talk about that? that? That's a huge transition for you. Yeah, it's, it's uh, one that was not expected by me. Uh, first, I'd just like to say to all Philadelphians that, uh, you know, I, I, re I regret having let them down and having uh, to become a federal target and to have been prosecuted and to not been able to complete my obligation to the citizens of Philadelphia as they elected me. Um, you know, uh, federal political prosecutions are all about who your enemies are, so we won't even get into any of that. Okay, um, but I think that's very clear to our very, uh, you know, uh, politics of America today are just red versus blue and uh, neighbor versus neighbor, unfortunately. Um, well, is it fair to say that there's, is it fair to say that, that it's not a coincidence that uh, immediately after a new presidential administration of a different party is sworn in that all of a sudden a new U.S. attorney shows up and hands down a 29-count indictment? Well, it was actually in the vacuum between when the Obama prosecution, you know, the U.S. attorneys had mm -hmm. resigned before the Trump people were sworn in. There was just a vacuum Okay. when all this took place. But I will say um, that I accepted responsibility for the fact that I had accepted gifts from friends that I should have reported. Um, the city has very, very strict uh, ethics rules and I violated those. There are some gifts that I shouldn't have even accepted from my friends. And I had negotiated with the city's ethics board uh, to pay fines for that because I should, have, I should have reported every gift and some gifts I shouldn't have even reported. Mm -hmm. um, and so I accepted responsibility for that. Um, but the 29 counts, you know, including driving my city vehicle for personal use and all these other things, uh, you know, we won't go into all that or I, I won't at this no, time. No, that's, that's not right? our story here today. But I think but it, it was just a tremendous learning experience for me. Um, and I was, uh, 
where God wanted me to be, to learn and to do things that I never would have had the opportunity to have been exposed to or to learn. Um, I regret that my daughters, you know, and family um, were the greatest victims of everything, uh, more so than I was. Um, you know, but for me, it was a tremendous learning uh, experience and an amazing spiritual journey that I really wouldn't trade for anything. Um, so uh, I'll turn it back over to you on that note. Will you, I mean, speaking of, of spiritual connection, you tweeted recently about a piece of scripture that really helped you get through a time when during your confinement, you were in solitary. How on earth do you end up in solitary? Yeah, so I spent, you know, I was on trial and uh, I was fighting these charges against me um, because I knew I, in my mind, had no criminal intention to to do these things that I've been charged with. Um, but we had a, a bad day in court after having a good week and we were offered, uh, my attorneys were offered a one count uh, for me to plead and I, they had to, you know, convince me to do this. Um, but I was told that I could enter the plea, that I would have probably four months to be able to get my affairs in order, as they say, right, before I would have to have sentencing and then surrender myself. And I have time to take my daughters to therapy and to sell our house and do all those things to go from having been the DA one day into, you know, um, I went to court, I entered my plea, but the judge, um, he saw fit instead to revoke my bail. I was handcuffed in court and taken immediately underground from the federal correct from the courthouse to the federal detention center, strip search, put in an orange jumpsuit and placed in solitary confinement for five months, 152 days in solitary confinement. Um, and, you know, so I lost my reputation, my elected office, my pension, my city pension would have been $122,000 a year every mm -hmm. year. That's gone. I lost my house, law license, liberty, most importantly, time, family, and friends. Um, but it was when I had nothing, when God was all I had, I learned that God was all I needed. And that's really all they got me through um, solitary confinement, just being alone every day, all day. What what was the purpose for sol for five months of solitary? Is that just simply just their the in processing, or or was there some particular reason why that was decided for you? Well, I, I will say that it was primarily as a result of the laziness and inefficiency of the Bureau of Prisons, mm. right? In that they claimed it was for my own safety, right? Protective, protective custody, basically just putting me in my own cell. Mm -hmm. where the United Nations, uh, Amnesty International, even studies done by the Obama Justice Department all said that anything more than 10 days of solitary confinement for a human is deleterious to your mental health and will cause PTSD. So they, they could have found other ways to house me somewhere else or mm -hmm. a different floor or something, um, but instead they just put me in the hole that they refer to as people, you know, you see movies like Cool Hand Luke or whatever, the whole, the, you know, the special housing unit. That's where I remained uh, for um, 
152 days while in Philadelphia. And three years into your confinement, you were released. You got some time off for good behavior. You got some time off for, for doing a, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program while you were, what, while you were incarcerated and then you're released. And, and as you pointed out, you're released, uh, you had resigned from office. So you had no job. You lost your home. You lost your law license. So you couldn't earn a living doing what you did. You lost your city pension. You lost your commission in the army and, and your Correct. military pension. Correct. What did you come back to? You know, in movies, they make it look like you walk out of prison, they give you a suit, and everybody hugs you and kisses you and has a party. And then it's like birds are, you know, chirping, and it's just happiness. I found in many ways reentry uh, was more difficult than actually even being in prison. Mm. Um, and so I came home and grateful that my you know, ex-wife allowed me to live in um uh the attic of her home um but you know i worked at uh, lowe's unloading trucks and stocking shelves uh, from 7 p.m until 5 30 in the morning uh you know so it was difficult extremely difficult and this is the challenge that many citizens face upon release correct i mean they tell you you have to have a place to live you have to have a job or you'll be in violation of your probation or supervised release. Really, no one helps you get a place to live. No one helps you get a job. Um, and so despite me having been the district attorney and being in law enforcement since 1992, I was ignorant to all of these collateral uh, issues that returning citizens uh, and their families face. Um, and so that's why I really see it as kind of like my own personal uh, uh, mission, um, uh, ministry, if you will, trying to address and help other people address those problems. Because how we address reentry will significantly help us have safer communities um, and help us to reduce recidivism. We're going to talk about that after a break that's coming up. But before we head out, there's a story that I've heard, and I, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the story is that one of your fellow inmates was uh, was in a very, very dark place and, and was contemplating suicide. And basically, you show up, and he learns kind of exactly what the changes in your life are going to be as a result of your incarceration and conviction. And, and he looks at that and says, well, if, if Seth Williams can do it, I can do it. Is this true? Could you, I lost part of, I lost internet connection during part oh. of that. I'm sorry. Well, we'll, we'll deal with it when we come back, but, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, but, it, but it's a story about an inmate who is contemplating suicide and you yes. became the reason why he could keep going because if you, if everything could happen to you, he could get through a day. Yes. The story of bright Agato and that specific story really is what, Changed my life forever. Well, we're going to come back to that in a second. We're talking with Seth Williams of Second Chance Strategies in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, about the business of helping formerly incarcerated citizens prepare themselves for a second chance. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. 
your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the business of second chances with Seth Williams, former Philadelphia district attorney and an advocate for the formerly incarcerated. Seth, as we were heading out on break, um, I was asking you about a fellow inmate who who was in a bad place and and, and really kind of kind of used you as his inspiration to to get past what was a, a, a profound depression. Yeah. And so, you know, here I am, I found myself in solitary confinement, angry, depressed. Um, and I had one amazing, uh, and transformative spiritual event the day before the next day I'm at, so one hour out of the day, Monday through Friday, I got to go to what's called wreck. They've come to my cell, the correctional officers handcuffed me and then walked me to my own chain link fenced area, seven feet by 12 feet, like a, a dog kennel at a SPCA, which was my rec area where I could just get a little fresh air, mm-hmm. right? On a roof at the eighth floor of uh, the, the federal detention center. So one day I'm in my little rec pen and a, a man who I've only seen when I walk through the halls, I see his face, I'd seen his face in his cell door. 
he came up to me and he said, Mr. Williams, may I speak to you? And he had this very thick Nigerian accent. I said, sure. And uh, he said that he had received, he, has a bad, he had a master's degree in finance. He'd been a real estate guy in New York and somehow did some sort of real estate transaction. He was the last man holding a hot potato and he got prosecuted. He found himself in prison there and that his father had been a Nigerian diplomat and that he felt as though he had brought great shame on his entire family uh, and that people were so upset with him and that he had brought, you know, disrepute to the entire family um, and he'd become suicidal and that he had decided now after he had been in uh, solitary for a week himself and he had been there because he got into a shoving match with another inmate, another workplace in the prison, um, he decided to take his life and he had written his family his suicide letter. Um, and he had five children and he said goodbye to them and he said goodbye to his wife. And he said as soon as he finished writing the letter and he put it in the envelope, he saw the correctional officers walking me through the hall. And he said to himself, that is Mr. Williams. He was the DA. He has lost more than I'll ever lose. <laughs> Yet he is still standing. If he can survive, so shall I. And he decided not to kill himself. So I'm standing in the, with my orange jumpsuit looking at him. I'm like, wait, what? I lost everything. What are you talking about? He's like, no, Mr. Williams, you never gave up. If you won't give up, I won't either. And, it, and, and Ted, it really blew my mind um, because I had been so upset and depressed and looking at spring through a perspective of me, a, a self-centered world, and that I had lost everything. Um, but here I figured out really, you know, and everybody had told me to read the book of Job um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the story of Job who lost everything. And the punchline of Job was, look, it's not yours to understand, right? You came in the world with nothing, you're going to leave with nothing. Just always give praise to the name of God. Um, but with this story with Bright Agado was this guy's name. His name literally means light of God, Bright Ogado, okay? I began to see it all through the perspective of God had me where he needed me to be. It, maybe it was uncomfortable for me where I was, um, but I was there, and Bright Agado's children still have a father. His wife still has a husband. And later, two years later, after having not seen him, he popped up at the same prison I was at in West Virginia hmm. as an inmate there. And we reconnected. And every time we saw each other, we would pray. And I was like, look, you know, I used to be a politician and gave speeches and sold big fish stories, right? This is what you told me. I was like, yes, Mr. Williams, if it wasn't for you. And so I began to see that, yeah, I, I lost all those things I told you and your, your audience about, right? My pension, job. But while I was away, um, I taught GED, and 19 of my students earned their GED. I taught classical poetry. I learned how to play the saxophone, and I teach the saxophone and beginner piano. I taught a class on resume writing and interview skills to help those people um, when they got home to be able to not only get jobs, but keep them. And when I had been the DA, everywhere I went, I talked about reducing recidivism. 
here I was actually now at a place I never would have chosen. I never would have chosen being, giving up being the DA to teach GED. But I actually found myself doing all those things I told you at the onset that my father did. I was coaching basketball, right? I was teaching GED, all those uh, elements, you know, social studies, math, science, reading and language arts. I was, I was teaching saxophone. I was on the prison basketball team. Uh, everybody in prison has a nickname. And you don't get to veto it if you don't like it. If everybody's calling you stinky, you don't get to go, whoa, 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 don't mm -hmm. call me. So they put me in prison. They had me in solitary thinking people were going to hurt me. The name the inmates gave me was the professor. <laughs> and it sounded like respect that I was helping them. Um, and so through the perspective and the later friendship I had with Bright Agato, I really saw that, yeah, despite me having lost everything as I perceived it, I gained the world in many ways, but I was where I was supposed to be. And then I came home and my goal and mission has been to try to help businesses um, understand what they need to do to be able to hire and retain returning citizens. So and let's talk about help. Sure. Um, in the U.S., the recidivism rate is more than 70%. Correct. More than 70% of released citizens will be back in prison within five years. A study That's a terrible the, statistic right there. It, it from, is. From, from a far left-wing Mother, Mother Teresa, a hippie, progressive leftist politician perspective, or from a far right-wing return on investment business perspective, having over two thirds of our, the people we send away, having two thirds of them fail and getting rearrested, it, it shows a systemic failure. Right. And waste and, of thousands of dollars. And, and the Rand Corporation and the Vera Institute of Justice recently determined that participation in a correctional education program or post-correctional education program made a returning citizen 43% less likely to return to prison within three years. So a 13% reduction in the rate of recidivating. So education here seems to be one of two or three silver bullets that can right. really address this. And, and that gets back to, to what you were saying earlier. When you walk out of prison, you basically walk out with what you have on your back. And if you're lucky, a place to stay a voucher from there, it's a blank page. Right, right. So, so what we have to do... You know, to your point, Ted, um, from a business perspective, is address those issues, the criminogenic needs of each individual. Um, we have to address the mental health problems or drug addiction or addictive behavior, personality disorders that people have that in many ways cause them to violate the law. Um, and we have to address the educational disparity. Um, but what I found, the majority of the men that I was in prison with had struggled or suffered from some sort of significant trauma that went untreated or undiagnosed until they acted out and went to prison. Right. Um, we used to treat people with mental health issues with community-based mental health. And that, a lot of that ended in the 80s. But it's not that we stopped treating the people. It's where do we treat them? Instead right. of treating them in community-based mental health facilities now, the number one purveyor of mental health treatment, which really isn't much of a treatment, is in the Los Angeles County prison system. 
Number two is the New York City prison system. Number three is Cook County, Illinois prison system, Chicago. So I think we need to uh, have early diagnostics um, and then provide mental health treatment in the community. Um, but in addition to that, uh, a lot of people need, um, you know, everybody's not going to be a rocket scientist, right? But we need a lot of people to be trained uh, to be HVAC technicians, right? Cl fixing the, the heating and the ventilation, the air conditioning system, especially mm -hmm. now post-COVID, right? Um, we need people to have such a need right now in America for truck drivers, CDL class B and C drivers. Right. Um, so we need to do all that we can to train people who have been out of the workforce um, to get them to jobs that prevents crime, that reduces recidivism. But in addition to teaching them the actual portable vocational skills, we need to give them the, the life skills they need to keep a job. All right. So I created a diversionary program when I was the DA um, that we call the Choice is Yours. It replicated what Kamala Harris had created in San Francisco when she was the DA called Back on Track. She's now the Vice President of the United States. But instead of spending $35,000 a year to send someone to state prison for having sold two sugar packets worth of crack, right, two grams, mm -hmm. um, instead of doing that, we gave them a no contest plea, but gave them literacy training, job skills training, workforce development skills chain, right? Um, have a cohort peer group that they are responsible to. Um, that program in Philadelphia costs us about $4,000 a year and has a recidivism rate of less than 10%. The DA's office in conjunction with JEVS is still running that here in Philadelphia. So that's like a business model that could be scaled up to really show that if we, we can prevent future crime, reduce recidivism, helping these individuals get the skills they need to get into the workforce and to remain in the workforce. And that's, that's gold. So there, there are programs that provide vocational training for the formerly incarcerated. You, you ran one of them yes. uh, for a time. How did those programs work? Well, many of them are based solely on the largesse of donors um, many of them, you know, receive some seed money from private entities, but then receive compensation on the back end for graduating people that will be earning more than like $18.50 an hour as a way of taking them off of the state's role of unemployed or those that are receiving benefits for, uh, you know, nutrition for food, for what we call food stamps a long time ago, right? People who are on welfare, for lack of a better word, by taking them off of government assistance into real jobs where they're going to become taxpayers. Um, so a lot of those programs and those uh, vocational training programs receive significant compensation upon the graduation and sending those graduates onto the workforce. And, and how long do those programs typically take? So they all depend. Um, the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard has some amazing programs right now that are about four weeks. They actually take them and get them jobs 
um, as apprentices uh, in welding um, down at the Navy Yard. So but a lot of these programs take anywhere between 10 to 15 weeks. So again, the problem becomes here you have an adult who has to have housing. They have to buy food, right? They have to get transportation, mm -hmm. right? So you have all of these roadblocks, right? You know, you got to have a SEPTA key card in Philadelphia, right? If you're going to get anywhere, you got to have one of these if you don't have your own car. Right. I don't have my own car. So I, I have a bicycle. I'm lucky now I have a scooter that someone gave me. Yep. And I got my SEPTA key card. So, but if you don't have a key card, um, how are you going to get somewhere? Or how are you going to eat? Um, and so in addition to providing these programs, we have to come up with creative ways to ensure that the people who are in the programs um, are eating, have housing, have clothing. So it's so many layers to this, but there are a lot of great people who are doing good things. Uh, OIC in the Philadelphia has tremendous training opportunities and, and programs. And go ahead. Tell our listeners what OIC is. So OIC was created by the Reverend Dr. Leon Sullivan in the Philadelphia in the 60s. And they have a business complex and like a shopping center, the first black owned shopping center, which is around um, Broad and Oxford, right near uh, Temple's campus now. Um, but it stands for Opportunities Industrial Corporation, I believe is what the, uh, the acronym OIC stands for. Um, but there are the National Urban League, they also have wonderful training programs for returning citizens um, and the chronically unemployed. And, and uh, Impact Services, which is in Kensington, has wonderful programs for, again, returning citizens uh, and homeless veterans. So the, Philadelphia has a lot of great organizations, many of which are in their own silos. Um, Self Inc. is a tremendous opportunity for a lot of people to help people who are homeless or those that uh, um, have HIV. And so there are a lot of different programs helping people. Um, Project Home is another organization that, you know, is really trying to eradicate homelessness uh, in Philadelphia. Mission Philadelphia is another organization. But a lot of these are all, unfortunately, fighting for the same funding right. dollars. Um, you know, uh, I know the city of Philadelphia and the mayor himself, you know, they're trying to channel as much money and Governor Wolf, of course, and, you know, to different programs to try to help with workforce uh, development. And and the problems that you're describing and the, and, and the services that you're describing, we're, we're talking about them from a Philadelphia centric perspective, Correct. but really they, they exist in every major city. I, I imagine one of the challenges is how do how do the people who need these services find these services in a timely fashion? Because it, it, it strikes me that once release happens, a clock starts ticking. And, and the longer that need goes unaddressed, the harder it's going to be to, to help them realize that, that service. Yeah. So really the, what the statistics show is that the first 72 hours of reentry are the most significant, that if people do, aren't able to get the housing. So these things need to be lined up ahead of time, the housing, a job, all of those things, because if they're not, people are going to go back to the same pattern of behavior that they had. Now, you're right. This is we're talking today from a Philadelphia centric perspective. 
But it's important and imperative to talk about because of the 10 largest cities in America, Philadelphia has the most entrenched and the highest percentage of its population that lives at or below the national poverty level, which is just a, almost was close to 30% of Philadelphians live below the national poverty level. Some, uh, some, some incredibly high number, close to 40% of all Philadelphians have had some connection with the criminal justice system, have criminal records. Mm. So it's just amazing statistics. And when you, all of those things are unfortunately a perfect gumbo uh, stew for the rate of violent crime that we have when you pour into, uh, pour the gasoline on that, that fire of just the proliferation of handguns. You know, it, it's amazing that that you say this about Philadelphia. I lived in in Center City, Philadelphia, at a time when you you know you there were areas pretty close to where I went to school where you didn't want to ever be, and and that changed, and it changed because of a lot of invested commercial dollars. You know, the revitalization of of Market Street east of City Hall, the re the the building of of new residences, the the the, the migration of people. And, and disposable income back into Center City outside of kind of the higher wealth areas of Rittenhouse Square. And, and, right. and it seems like that came at a cost, to, particularly to the outer ring of neighborhoods in the city as people left and either came inwards or went outwards. And a lot of income left the city and a lot of that investment hasn't gone anywhere, but it seems like the result is it's left a more economically stratified stratified city with more exacerbated caste systems and 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 more exacerbated problems around wealth yeah well i mean you know the philadelphia inquirer recently published a very uh, lengthy um story that documented the both the racial the economic segregation of philadelphia um and overlapping it's all of that if you will you know you have the environment uh, the environmental design of crime. So um, the University of Pennsylvania, we'll say, right, and Temple University, uh, in many ways, are in neighborhoods that experience a lot of crime. But through things that you can do in the environment, uh, lighting, um, having people just out, right, uh, they have been able to do a lot to reduce crime. So there's a lot that can be done uh, through environmental design, is if you were to compare the subway system in New York with the subway system in Washington, D.C., by just environmental design, I'm sure you could recognize that there's probably much less crime in the subway system in D.C. than New York. Mm -hmm. um, and so the same can be done in Philadelphia through environmental design, um, uh, investment in trees and parks. It's amazing all the studies that show planting trees, having more green space in urban areas uh, prevents crime. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there were studies that if you had drug dealers on your corner and played Frank Sinatra music, they're just gonna go away. They're gonna right. go to another corner. Right. Um, that, that doesn't solve the problem, but I'm just saying in, there's things that can be done through environmental design. Let me ask a question. You, you talked about how you're advising businesses on finding ways to maximize second chances for released citizens. Uh, talk a little bit about, about that, because it's one thing to talk about the, 
the resources available for the citizens. It's one thing to talk about what the citizens need to do, but you're approaching it from the business side. What are you advising these companies? Well, I, I think, you know, having been an employer myself, I had 600 employees at the district attorney's office. Our greatest investment is in our employees. Well, the same is true here in Philadelphia. A lot of private companies are looking for people. Um, and we have a large uh, population of people who are eligible to work, but they need to be given some additional skills. I read in the Wall Street Journal while I was away on my sabbatical an article about Nehemiah Industries in Cincinnati and how they invest in their employees who are from where their, their company is in the inner city Cincinnati, and they provide them with workforce development skills like financial literacy, conflict resolution, right? Having maybe an NA meeting or an AA meeting at the workplace, um, providing these wraparound skills that are services that these employees need. And just a small investment in those have helped those employees thrive in the workplace and to remain in the workplace, um, to reduce um, shrinkage at the, at the warehouse or whatever, mm -hmm. the, and just made them better employees and made them in, incredibly loyal employees and thankful. Um, and so just from a business perspective, a business model, um, finding out what the employees needed, right? That's why I learned when I was in the Army, right? The greatest generals, right? The greatest leaders were ones that really just knew what their troops needed and right. provided them with those things. Right. And so from a business perspective, we have a lot of employees in Philadelphia, potential employees that could be, you know, hired by these companies. And if then you teach them, you know, financial, how do you open up a checking account? How do you invest? What is your, how can you improve your credit score? All of these are small things that the business can do that's going to help their bottom line. And in doing that, you solve the employment problem. You give the employer a strong return on their investment and you solve the social services and financial access issues that, that plague the, the formerly incarcerated. Win, win, win. Well, that's going to have to be it for us today. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. We could talk for another hour, and I do hope you'll come back and keep keep this discussion going with us. Seth Williams I'll bring my CEO. saxophone. You bring your guitar. All right. Seth Williams is CEO of Second Chance Strategies in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Seth is on Twitter at NewSethWilliams. We'll put links to Seth's social media and other resources on our website under today's show notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.